Hi, I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to Lit. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and all other people who identify as a human in the world, welcome to our latest episode of Lit Think. I've gotten all of my goofy voice isms out already as we start this recording. Uh, maybe someday we'll expose those to the world. But for now, let's just talk, Sarah, about why we're excited to talk about American Born Chinese, the latest show not the latest show, but a show on Disney Plus that is an adaptation of a graphic novel you and I both love. So I read American Born Chinese for the first time last year because I was teaching it in my English mm. 10 class. The English 10 team was teaching it. And you had been excited about American Born Chinese for years. And I just had had it on my to read list for the longest time. And then conveniently enough, at, right after, as we were finishing the reading of American Born Chinese, Disney announced that they were dropping it uh, in May. And so our team got really excited because we were like, look, American Born Chinese is coming out. It looks really cool. Um, we were looking at previews right after we had done our episode for Everything Everywhere All at Once, which had some of the same actors in it. And so we were just, we were excited to see how this graphic novel would be portrayed on the screen. And as we talked about when we did Daisy Jones and the Six, one of the beauties of television is that as a medium, as opposed to just putting everything on film, is you can really expand the story more and do more with it. And so we were excited to see what Disney would do by updating a story that was beautiful when it came out the first time, but also has in many ways become dated, in good ways, has become mm -hmm. dated over time. So yeah, we're just really excited to do this. Well, and let, let's add a little bit more color and context to that story. You and I both have had American Born Chinese on choice reading list yeah, we as have. co teachers for years. Uh, mm -hmm. When we actually first developed our multicultural project for American literature back in 2012, American Born Chinese was on the list. And I remember how excited students were. Some of our reluctant readers were excited to see a graphic novel and let's be honest, adjacent to a graphic memoir on the list. So I, we have celebrated the all of the accolades of this book. And we've actually, I just revealed to Sarah, based on a little bit after this airs, Jean Lu and Yang is actually going to be coming to Indianapolis. We're both very excited to attend his talk in October. So I loved, I, I am with you that I think we were both like, this is a story we love. We have loved seeing how, as a general rule, a graphic novel that addresses such important issues has been embraced by students. And then we're also excited to see how the story can live on and how wonderful that Jean Liu and Yang was involved in the creation of the show. You can definitely see his handprints in it. I am a huge fan of his graphic memoir. Dragon Hoops. No, but you turned into Dragon Hoops because you told me that it was really good. And then I read it during Silence of Saint, like over a two to three week period during Silence of Saint reading time. I was like, okay. And it's huge. It's like that thick. It's, it's very it's thick. thick. Yep. I loved it. It was even better than American Born Chinese. I thought it and was. I, because I think, again, you can see how Jean Lu and Yang has matured as a storyteller from 
his time in writing American Born Chinese. And I think that's true in his handprints on the TV show. And it's true in the yeah. book Dragon Hoops. I mean, that is another frame story. He's a huge fan of the frame story, but he does a lot with how stories and layers of stories can reflect on each other and how, as you peel back those layers, what is at the core. But I mean, I've used excerpts of Dragon Hoops in my British colonization units talking about I mean, the history of basketball is very much a history of colonization and, and, and just world dominance. There's, there's lots of fascinating things that he pulls into while also just talking about his passion as an educator, his passion for creating art and his, his passion for a sport that he actually didn't know that he would find passion for. So all of that to say, we are going to try and honor the full history of American born Chinese by talking, our literary lens this week is going to be talking about the idea of graphic novel storytelling. I actually was showing Sarah before we started recording all the way back in 2009, little undergrad Alicia made a PowerPoint presentation called graphic novels in the classroom. Do they have a place? <laughs> and did, did lots of research and, you know, uh, this was cutting edge stuff back in 2009. I mean, American born Chinese was published in 2006. So it's just kind of interesting how this genre has exploded. You and I both know we both confidently put graphic novels in students' hands and said, this is a valid text for you to read right now. Um, so anyway, what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of talk about some of those terms that I know as a huge lover of graphic novels and graphic memoirs. Sarah is going to talk about how even the TV show still reflects some of these terms. And then we're going to let it get. So let's just start on a, on a very basic level. A 2009 article from the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy broke down the terms of comics, graphic novels, and sequential art as these three things. If you don't know the difference, it is important to know the difference. Comics, by definition, are a, a magazine or a book that contains sequential art. Sequential art, by definition, is a series of illustrations that tell a story. And then a graphic novel is going to be a comic with a lengthy and complex storyline. So, hey, we see those pieces, kind of the more graphic novel, lengthy storyline across the episodes of American Born Chinese. We also see this idea of sequential art, which, hey, in English teacher terms, we might actually call repetitive imagery or symbolism or even a motif. We see a lot of that in the show. So tell me a little bit more, yeah. Sarah, about how we see kind of that visual storytelling element in the American Born Chinese TV show. I think it's kind of fascinating when we talk about the graphic novel because people want to think about just pictures. They think about comics, right? And this is actually when I go back to the whole conversation about the difference between comics and graphic novels. They think about comics and they're like, oh, it's just superhero stuff. It's just mm -hmm. about all the, the Spider-Man and the Batman and, and that yeah, those tell fun stories, but do they really tell a deep, complex story? Well, I think a lot of people that are into comics have argued for years that the complexity of the storyline that carries on over decades for a lot of these characters is actually pretty deep. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the beauty about the graphic novel is it takes that complexity and it compresses it into a novel form. So when people complain and say, hey, my kid's just reading graphic novels and I hate that they're just reading graphic novels. I, I just want to be like, stop, <laughs> because your kid really is reading a full story that is very complex. 
And we start to see that even from the very beginning in American Born Chinese, a television show, because he loves comics. He loves manga. He has one of his good friends who he kind of writes off for a little bit there is also really into manga and really into that kind of storytelling. Um, he has this figurine that is very, it looks very Transformers like that is on his dresser that it plays a role through that comes in over and over again in the different episodes. And it, it is, it's telling that story with a lot of visualization. So it's, it's beautiful with even the, the fighting, the fight scenes that go on between when we bring in the monkey King and the son of the monkey King and the battle for the heavens and they're trying to figure out who's going to get control of the heavens. When we bring all of those pieces in, a lot of it is just very much comic like, but you're telling a fairly layered story and it's a layered story that is the stereotypical frame story, but in a very different way than what you see in the, in the graphic novel In the graphic novel, there's six sections. So in the graphic novel, you get those six sections, right? And if people don't notice that as a frame, they don't realize the frame until you get to the sixth section because that's when all the stories converge. Whereas in this television show, those stories are converging and layering on top of each other in every episode. You're seeing them from the very first episode. You're seeing them layer on top of each other, which is something that television it allows you to do because you can switch between scenes very easily. Um, but as someone who loved the comic or the graphic novel, I loved seeing all those stories layer on top of each other from the get-go because it, it gave a lot of complexity to it. So before we go any further, I think you bring up a really important point that yes, when we think of graphic novels, I think often the battle that we're still fighting with, especially parents, they think my kid isn't reading when you put a graphic novel in their hands because they assume that is just dismissive fluff stories. They even might think it's it's like Sunday comics. It's Garfield, it's Charlie Brown. It's not a full-fledged, layered story. The people who actually changed that, let's do a little bit of comic history 101, are Osamu Tezuka. He created Astro Boy. He's considered like the god of manga or the father of the manga genre. Manga and anime are not the same, by the way. Um, but manga is our Japanese form of storytelling that really created the modern graphic novel. But then the first American author that really, really embraced that genre is Art Spiegelman, who's most famous for writing Mouse. And hey, we just talked about book banning last episode, you guys. Everyone should read Mouse, no matter Art Spiegelman's <laughs> history. Uh, beautiful, powerful. And I, I think a crucial story is it's a graphic novel that won a Pulitzer. So it, it reminds us for the first time ever, I think for a lot of people, it legitimizes this genre. And then you are right. Oftentimes, as we talk about the term frame story, frame story 101, it's a story within a story. One of the most famous frame stories that you and I love teaching is an example like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We have to develop each layer wholly before we can make our cake, right? But in something like a TV show, partially because you can tell stories faster, partially because you can tell stories more complex. Cause I mean, thanks to something like multimodality, you know, multi multiple literacies within one, one medium, we're telling stories through so many different ways. You can, it can happen all at once. Everything everywhere all at once can happen. <laughs> uh, which a lot of people have said this show is very adjacent to all of that to say, 
you're pointing out really are, are three main layers in the show. If we're pulling apart the layers of the show, we have the heavens and the, where the monkey king and his son are from, right? Mm-hmm. We have Jin's universe, which is our universe. And then we have this TV show universe, which is adjacent to Jin's world. That's where we see Hei Hei Kwan uh, show up in the show. But no matter what, we see kind of these three stories are the ones that are circling each other through the show, right? And that was interesting, I think, when we have that the third one, which is hard to see what the purpose of that one is, because it's it, in the graphic novel, it's the main character of this kind of sitcom is Chang Ki, which is very intentionally overplaying racist stereotypes of Chinese characters. And in the television show, it becomes a television show called Beyond Repair. And in the tele- that television show, instead of having this annoying cousin come in who is named Chen Ki, it's this repairman who makes all these mistakes and has catchphrases that are, yeah, are very much a, a play on a lot of different stereotypes of Chinese characters. Um, and I think the beautiful thing that really hit me in the second to last episode was when they were, they, they're doing this look back at this show 20 years later, they're looking back at the show and, and they're reflecting on it. And the actor who plays this character on um, beyond repair is just having a really hard time with the way everyone's laughing about it and thinking about it. Cause quite frankly, he's not comfortable with the role and the role took away his chances of getting a lot of better, more serious acting roles, which is what he wanted to do. So I, I liked the way they changed that part of the frame story because it still played up the significance of the way we turn stereotypes into comedy for better or for worse, often for worse, but the way we take those stereotypes and turn them into comedy and chain and looked at the frame story in that way. Yeah. The frame story, I think that the best thing about the layering of the frame story that we can see in a television show is that we do see that happening in a lot of different works. Like even with Frank, the latest edition of Frankenstein, well, the one that's closest to the novel, Frankenstein, the Kent Brana version, they did the same thing, right? They didn't keep the frame story at the beginning and the end. They kept flashing to um, Robert Walton and all the scenes with that too. So I think it it's a method that's been used before. Just turn it and mix it all up. So it was, I appreciated it. I thought that it was very well done. The, the last scene with everything converging at the end and uh, everyone else being witness to the final battle scene in the last episode was uh, a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> well, and so it's interesting, right? Like Wei Chen is arguably supposed to be initially to some extent the Chen Qi character. We yeah. see the way it responds to him. I mean, oh my gosh, this, this principal at the school the amount of things that he, she said, they're supposed to just make you cringe, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the amount of times that she, I mean, she, she just goes up to Jen and she goes, oh, you're also Asian. You can take care of Wei Chen. And Wei Chen is in every possible way. He is the cringy immigrant character that Jin is, I mean, Jin so much, he is arguably his own frame story because he is a child of immigrants but also living in America. Here's our American-born Chinese, right? He's like, I we eat traditional Chinese food at home. My parents speak to each other in Mandarin. 
And yet there's this big reality that like, I'm still trying to fit in with the cool kids at school. I want to be on the soccer team. I want to belong. I want the cute Caucasian girl to like me. These layers of, I want to belong to my American culture. And someone like Wei Chen comes in as a threat to that. So one of the things though, that then makes Kei Hui Kwan's character so beautiful and powerful when we hear this speech near the end of the show is he's verbalizing those layers that Jin maybe doesn't even realize that he's battling mm-hmm. in a way yeah. that I think, again, merges all of those stories, gives him permission to be both and, which is never easy for a multicultural individual. But we are starting to see a through line that gives us permission to do that, to, to forge that path to say you're not alone, the, the community along with the frame story and all of that, the way that they merge together also through this camaraderie and community is, is so beautiful and powerful, I think. Well, and we see in the television show that Jin, he changes his tune about Wei Chen so much faster and he changes his tune about Wei Chen sooner because he is given a purpose. He's given a job and, and the job is to help save the world. <laughs> and that's, he, he is, when he finally realizes that Wei Chen is not lying to him, that he really is the son of the monkey king. The monkey king is in trouble. They are <laughs> headed for a battle. They're looking for this fourth scroll. Who ends up being Jin, which is so funny. I, I laughed out loud <laughs> when Malaysia was made because everybody was like, yay. And I was like, and, but nobody really knows what they're cheering for. It, what really happens is Anuj, his friend, is the he's the nerdy friend who's really into manga and really into the storytelling and is into the cosplay and everything else. And that's the one who he kind of tosses to the side so that he can first be on the soccer team, which also Wei Chen gets, kind of gets in the way of him trying to be on the soccer team, but also then gets in the way of him trying to help Wei Chen. So it, there's a lot of that friendship tension there that isn't as racially motivated as it is in the graphic novel, which I think makes sense because of the time that's ha- the time that's passed now and the way things have changed, not as much as they need to, but have, have changed. And we, we don't see that tension. The tension with his teammates is less racially motivated than it is just the fact that he's seen as an outsider for a lot of reasons that he just is not part of the soccer team. Well, and th- I think the other thing we need to really acknowledge as we're talking about stereotypes of AAPI individuals, especially in verbal media, like a TV show or a movie is going to be their accent. And this is very mm-hmm. much what happens in Kate Hoi character in the sitcom. And yet we find out that outside of his background in the sitcom, He's a Shakespeare actor, a Shakespeare teacher at a community college. Mm-hmm. Classically just, trained. Right? It's supposed to be mind-blowing. I mean, this whole idea of blind casting in relation to the classics uh, is still a very modern concept that we can have other individuals besides Caucasian individuals in these roles. And I mean, you and I were even just talking, okay, one of the other beauties of the end of this show, it sets up for a new season. We have to ask with the writer strike, is it going to happen? My response was, 
unfortunately, I genuinely believe the results of the writer's strike are going to be that producers are only going to invest in guaranteed home runs out of the box office. And I think that's going to mean a continued backward slide of representation and all of these advancements that we've seen in Hollywood, we're going to see individuals like Kei Hui Kwan, whose careers are going to, I mean, he is a rising star by all means, but I'm saying the example of him in the show, unfortunately, I think is only going to continue to have stories like that in our world. I think if we're going to go back to the whole concept of, of looking at the graphic novel in the television show and all of those are concerns that we have, but we're going to be optimistic and we're going to think that we can continue this unique storytelling. I, you know, a lot of graphic novels have started to be turned. It, they've taken graphic novels and Diary of the Wimpy Kid got turned into movies and the last kids on earth got turned into a television show. And now we get a novel like American born Chinese that gets turned into a television show and expands the narrative that was there it doesn't just do a replay of the narrative that was there, but it expands that narrative into something that is updated and into something that shows progress, but also the challenges of being AIPI and in the United States still. And it deals with all of those things. And it is an extension of where Art Spiegelman started. And you talked about Mouse. That was the very first graphic novel I had ever read. I had to read it for a YA class in undergrad. Um, and our professor was insistent that we all had to read. We, we read the first volume, but I had ordered both volume one and volume two. So I read both volume one and one and volume two when I took the class. And I fell in love with the book. I have loved the book ever since. I think it is a beautiful, haunting piece of art and literature that tells a really important story and telling his father's story of the Holocaust. And I, I think we, we see the same thing then happening with American born Chinese and the idea that this is an important story that needs to be told because it's capturing a moment, but it's doing it in art and it's doing it and it enhances the cultural lessons too. Like I learned reading that book, I learned so much about Chinese culture just about the mythology in Chinese culture that I had never known before. And I think that's important too. We need to be open to these stories that expose us to other cultures and help us to see those. And when you can see it visually, it it's a big, it's a game changer. Well, and that speaks to this idea of multimodality. I mean, ultimately graphic novels, if you look at the actual science behind why English teachers have embraced them, is because if we're saying multiple literacies can happen all in one space, you actually, more of your brain is engaged when you read something like a graphic novel or, hey, lip think for us, when you engage critically with a visual text than you are just when you're looking at words on a page. Is there a very crucial and important role in just a text-based novel? 100%. But, I mean... What's so interesting and fascinating, I think, to hold side by side, the fact that the main people who benefit from graphic novels are individuals like deaf individuals who may not be able to hear tone, but they can interpret tone through a genre like graphic novels and English language learners. So even someone like Wei Chen or Kei Hui Quan at one point in his career could have benefited from uh, the character that he plays. But um could have benefited from graphic novels as a way to help them better understand 
culture and language and tone. I think that's so beautiful and important then to also see how Jin and Wei Chen come together around the manga series that they do, which I mean, Wei Chen is like, this is the story of my family. The way that we can acknowledge the complexity of story, the way that storytelling is such an art form. And by art form, we mean it takes a really good, not just writer, but I mean, we're also talking about when it comes to a show, the director, I mean, the actors, all of the ways that all of these layers came together to create what we end up having in this show. Um, I know I watched this over the summer, so <laughs> it's been a minute since I watched it. Sarah watched it most recently, but I've been harping to her for a while. Like I just was really impressed with what was created for this show. I did not expect it to be as powerful as it was. If I'm going to add one thing that I think was a brilliant addition to the story was the subplot with his parents. Because in the graphic novel, you you get interaction with his parents, but you don't get a story with his parents. And there's a parent-child story there. There's a cultural story there. There's a story of immigrants and, and also the expectations and the hopes and dreams they have for their children. Um, and in this case, just Jen is their only child, but there's that beautiful moment when his dad is talking about, talk, they, they come across the monkey cane in that final episode and the monkey cane tells him that the children are the key you know like if, if your kids are you know everything's okay if your kid is okay is going to be okay and his father is just like yeah no jen's got his head on straight like i don't think we have to, i think we did it okay i think we're okay and this is not to put extra pressure on children like that's not the goal the goal isn't to say we're putting the pressure on the kids they've got to save us because sometimes i feel like we're saying that to gen z <laughs> Way too much. Yeah, you are you are our future. Um, save us, please. I, I feel like we we might put that pressure on there too much, but it was a beautiful type of discussion of how parents relate to children and the expectations that parents put on children, but also the hopes and the way all of that can play out. His mom is she's such a good mom. She is like, there's that horrible moment where they're sitting in the principal's office and the principal is making all of these awful assumptions about his mom. Like she's a tiger mom and she's going to act like this. She's going to have a certain behavior and a certain relationship with her son because she's a tiger mom. And no, (laughs) that's not the case at all. She's a wonderful mother. And that's not to say that anyone that falls into the category of tiger mom, regardless of where they come from, that, that, says anything about their parenting that just is the way they relate to their kids right and it's it it is a beautiful commentary also on the way parents relate to their children and how those relationships can be formed and how they can be transformative right and i was even thinking just to build off of that that scene in the principal's office i mean these assumptions of uh, a child must be struggling because his parents are asian that you guys are putting Asian specific home pressures on your child, our, our stereotype of the Asian F. And yet what we actually hear and what we actually as the viewers of the show see in iteration is a far more complex story and relationship between Jin and his parents. 
and just in general between his his parents and each other like them as a whole yeah unit so all right i'm gonna do a huge pivot for you sarah let's come back to the idea of comics one more time and this is a question i saw in a lesson once i think it's important or interesting to discuss when you think about the the genre of comics the medium of comics do they function more like puppets theater or music theater why Someone who was a high school theater director for five no, years. Tell you. <laughs> in theater, as someone who did theater in high school, who directed high school theater, there are layers in theater that are both behind the scenes and in front of the curtain. And I know with puppets, you get the same thing. But with theater, the magic is in what is happening above and below and on the wings and behind. And the magic is happening everywhere. And I think in a graphic novel, if you're doing a really good analysis, you can see the magic happening on in the frame, off the frame, behind the frame. And you're also looking at the layers in an image. I mean, I always go back to, and I try to explain to students how significant graphic novels can be. I go to that scene in Mouse where he's sitting at a desk drawing his father's story and underneath his desk is a pile of bodies. And in that pile of bodies, you see the flies. Like it just, there's so many layers to that one frame of him doing all these things and building his career off of the deaths of the people that his father watched die. And it's just, I, so I say theater. I think that theater has those types of layers all over and yeah, you can see them in other places too, but I see it in theater. Well, so arguably, you know, puppets, we really just have the puppet and the puppet master. So, you know, you have the, the arguably then comics are, you have yeah. the writer and the, the, the writing, the, the comic creator and the comic that's created. I agree it's far more nuanced than that, because I even think about some of the beautiful imagery in the graphic novel version of American Born Chinese, when our protagonist, when his character is split in half into his two, we find out that ultimately he has become the two extremes of his personality he is the american that he wishes he could be and he is the chinese stereotype that he most fears everyone perceiving him as and Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways jen is i mean we we see that in some form as well in, in the show the only reason i might say that a comic is like music is because we need to think about the fact that music is for good or bad a universal language whatever language is being sung the, the notes underneath the music are culturally universal. They make the human experience. We know minor chords make us feel a certain way. Major chords feel make us feel a certain way. And the beauty, I think, of comics is we're talking about the reason it's powerful for English language learners and just individuals who are struggling with a multicultural perspective but trying to embrace one cultural iteration of a story. I think in a lot of ways drawing visual art has a universal element to it as well in the same way that i think there are certain universal elements of television and television storytelling that are universal so that's the only reason i might make an argument for music being similar to comics but i agree that as far as looking at 
the full nuance of the creation that ends up in front of you. Thinking of a comic as a form of theater, I think is a really beautiful idea. It's very dramatic. It can be very dramatic too, depending on how the images are drawn and how they're put on the page or what's happening at both on and off the frame. They can be, they can be pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. All right, Sarah, I'm going to ask you to start us out this week. What are you enjoying right now as far as other media? Uh, I finally listened to the recommendation of many to read Kristen Hannah's The Nightingale. So I did listen to that one and it kept me doing chores because I wanted to finish it for the first time ever. I think, I think it's it's the first time ever I took my headphones into the grocery store while I was shopping. (laughs) So I could keep listening while I was shopping. I love a good war story. I love a good World War II story. And I think the thing that really drew me to the Nightingale is that it takes us to France and you don't often get the French perspective of the war. Um, I think because France fell so early in the war, because it was occupied by the Nazis for so long, and people kind of forget that there was a life in France before the war and that life in France was completely turned. Like, I think they forget that France was really in bad shape for a long time, both during and after. So I, I, I appreciated that. Um, and I had guesses. I, it was pretty obvious early on who, which sister survived and which one did not, but I was still a little bit anxious about what was going to happen with that. So, but I really enjoyed that one. Um, and then for, for visual, we went to see when it was still on previews, we went to see the movie Gran Turismo and, um, it's a racing movie and it was so much fun. I, people were unsure of how, what it was going to be like, because it's based on the true story of, uh, Nissan when they took, um, Gran Turismo racers that, used the video game because apparently it was so accurate to driving that they took these people, mostly kids who had been using this racing game and said, okay, we're going to put you in a real race car and we're going to train you to be racers. And it was so fun. It was just fun. I was reminded how much I enjoy driving a fast car as much as I am also terrified of fast cars. And so it was, it was, it was fun. We enjoyed it. It was a good story. Was it something that you could sit down and analyze thoroughly? No, but it was, but it wasn't even just popcorn. Like it was just a fun movie that made you think a little bit. And so I enjoyed it. I like a good sports movie. I always have even racing. And you, Alicia? I feel like I'm kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel of things for me to watch by myself. Uh, my partner and I have both put a lot of like, I'm sure you and Jeff do this a lot too, but like you put things on hold of like, you can't watch that without me. But then like I'm sitting mm-hmm. here by myself sometimes in the evenings. I'm like, okay, but I want to watch something. So like, what am I allowed to watch? <laughs> so uh, I pulled up, it's a few years old and it was canceled after one season, but it's pretty smart. Uh, it's a TV show on Netflix. I mean, ultimately, you know, educated sister moves to LA, plans to spend a weekend with her estranged sister, and then boyfriend breaks up with her. So now she's stuck with estranged. 
hippie dippy sister. And then it's also LA. So there's a whole bunch of unlikely roommates. Think like friends, but in LA with a millennial slash internet culture twist. Yeah, it was just fun. It was like 10 episodes. It was fun. Um, it was listed under like the LGBTQIA plus recommendations. And there were just, I think, some really beautiful little like queer character moments in the show. I I just had fun. Like I said, lighthearted. Uh, but the last episode ends on a cliffhanger. And so then I was Googling. I was like, oh, and it's canceled. I'm going to like, what? <laughs> Which I think that's going to be of the future for a lot of shows that we've loved recently. You and I, I think this should be a warning. They should have a warning for those Crazy. shows. Be like, by the way, we canceled this. So if you enjoyed this, sorry. Don't get too invested. Be ready for the cliffhanger. And then like, okay, I know that it'll end on a cliffhanger. Fine. Um, so anyway, that's what I've been watching, been reading because, you know, the insomnia part of pregnancy has officially hit. Uh, I had a, you know, just one of those rough parent moments uh, when my first tiny human was very young. I think I posted something on social media. I'm just like, okay, how do you love yourself and also love your child? Like that, that's just exhausting. And someone, one of my uh, colleagues sent me this book. Um, it's by Anne Lamott, uh, who... I don't know. Have you read Bird by Bird, Sarah? I haven't. She is on my, I really should read her books eventually list. Yes. yes. Anne Lamott is one of those. I, I mean, she is known kind of, I think both for like her Christian memoir culture and then Bird by Bird is a book on how to write. So, I mean, if you love things like on writing by Stephen King, Bird by Bird is adjacent to that. But what I have really, I've taught Bird by Bird to students before. What I really enjoy about her writing is I mean, she's a recovering addict. She just, she doesn't really hold anything back. She's kind of like, look, here's the world. I'm going to tell it to you, swear words and all. And then I'm also going to like tell you why I choose love in the midst of that world. So this specific memoir that a colleague sent me is called Operating Instructions. When Lamont found out that she was pregnant with her child um, at like 35, someone encouraged her to keep a journal through her child's first year, which, I mean, let's acknowledge the energy to sit down and journal every day through your child's first year. It's not exactly. That sounds exhausting. Yes. But (laughs) it's also because she did preserve these in the moment thoughts. It, it, It is arguably the most accurate representation I've read of early parenthood, especially in that first calendar year. And so, you know, now as I have tiny human number one, as I'm growing tiny human number two, there's more than a moment. It's kind of the the Emily Dickinson, like, oh, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Like, oh, I see you. You see me. It's very comforting in all of the ways that, while also being irreverent <laughs> to parenthood, which I think is, is what I need right now. So uh, highly recommend. I'm actually not done with that. About, about, um, about 100 pages left, but thoroughly enjoying so with all that in mind, Sarah and I could talk for hours. It's what we do. But I want to remind you guys that you can always hear us talking more about more Lit Think things. If you subscribe to us on Substack, listen to our podcast, wherever podcast we found, or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Sarah and I love continuing to tell you all the media that we're absorbing and how we're lit thinking about it, even when it's not on the show. And please share it with your friends and colleagues. And anyone who you think might be interested, or sign them up for the newsletter. That works too. Totally. Don't tell them. <laughs> this has been Sarah and Alicia signing off. Keep on lit thinking, people.